Hey, hello, hi, welcome to and or back to the Equitheory podcast. I am your host, Jill Treese, and this week's episode, we are covering 25 things I wish I had known sooner in my work with horses. So maybe you'll learn something, maybe you'll consider something. Um, but I'm doing this because I just turned 25. So it seemed like we'll throw it back to the YouTuber roots and it'll give me something to talk about. And reflecting on this was really interesting because it took me to some places that I hadn't connected all the dots before. But um, there are like four main little regions we'll be covering. Um, I sort of grouped the points because it's, I don't know, they all sort of like blend together, but have different little features, you know, but um, some things I was just generally wrong about and misled about um, some systemic issues in the horse world, some quotes that have really shaped and led me in my journey with horses and some perspective shifts that I've had that I think are or have been rather monumental for me. So I'm going to share those with you. So let's just get into it. All right, you guys, before we get into the meat of the episode, we must do ads first. But if you would like to listen to these episodes ad free, you can become a member at Superscript. You can uh, click the link in the description below or become a subscriber on Spotify um, by just subscribing in app. And you'll also get access to asking questions to have members only episodes where I cover your question in your very own episode. Um beyond that there's also listener submissions down below you can click that link to submit your own question for me to answer in like an end of the episode little advice segment it's not quite a whole episode but uh sort of me giving my thoughts on just a little topic a little advice you know but not like do the training formal you get it but like whatever so yeah let's roll the ads <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alrighty, so 25 things that I wish that I knew sooner with horses. Um, so yeah, like I said, this is coming at you because I, your girl is 25. Um, crazy. Time has flown. Uh, I think when I started this podcast, when did I start this podcast? I think it was 2020, right? So it was four years ago. So it was like 21. Um, pretty crazy, pretty crazy how things have changed. Um, and as it sort of winds down, I feel like it's it's nice to have some some closing thoughts, you know. Um, so why don't we just get into this? So the first little category I have here is sort of things that I just had wrong for one reason or another, uh, but just things that were sort of commonplace, commonly said, commonly believed, and were not either true or we're not all the way true, or we're just sort of accepted as this like dogmatic 
belief. So number one, they wouldn't do it if they didn't want to is a myth. Um, so there was this, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here, but they're growing up in a competitive environment for horses. There was always this idea that horses enjoyed their job, that they loved it because if they did not, then they would not do it, which is sort of a straw man, sort of not a real argument because it's like, that's really the only possible explanation. The only reason horses are jumping over things is because they love it and they enjoy it and not because we carry whips and spurs and manipulate their front end with a bit and we employ corporal punishment if they do not do what we ask. Um, I'm sure that has nothing to do with it, right? So um, that that was a big one. Uh, very difficult to grapple with mentally that um, perhaps my horses were not always competing because they enjoyed it. I mean, I would like to believe on some level that they had a good time, <laughs> that they enjoyed it, but there are lots of things to consider, right? I mean, I did eventing. So at an event, the you take the horse off property, away from their home, away from their herd. You put them in a stall all weekend um, with constant lights, people, um, sounds from other horses, uh, cars driving past, golf carts, motorbikes, all of the things. Um, constantly confronted with all of these sounds. It's not very peaceful. Um, so they probably don't rest super well all weekend. And then they're in a box all weekend. And um, traveling multiple hours is really hard on a horse's stomach and their bodies um, and their nervous system. So, and then to go like compete um, with the current, you know, or the training methods that I was using at the time, very traditional, um, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, very coercive. And like, don't get me wrong, there is such a large part of me that loves my sport. And I still really identify with it because it is a huge part of who I was. And um, my journey with horses, and I really did enjoy the sport. And it, it gave me something that I am forever grateful for, just that outlet and that expression, that dopamine, and just feeling like I was, I was good at something, like I had a partner in my horse, and it was just fun. Looking back, there's some that's like, oh, that's a little bit difficult to, to grapple with. But I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I can still appreciate and hold dear and identify with as a part of myself, but also want to push for, you know, to see some changes that are more ethical. Um, so the idea that the horse would not compete if they didn't want to is not necessarily the most right-headed approach because, like I said, the setup is not, I think, if the horses could choose what they want. Um, so, yeah. And, like, it's certainly better in some areas, right? You don't have to, like, stall the horse the entire weekend. If you're close enough, you just trailer in, you compete, and then you go home, which is more ideal. Um, you know, there are little things that could be done, but are, especially in eventing, the sport is just really not set up 
to be able to do that. Like for me in Arkansas, I mean, sometimes we were trailering seven hours, so we can't obviously do that at the end of every event. Um, so you have to stay the whole weekend, but, um, yeah, so that's number one. Number two, the concept of respect is often conflated or confused with the concept of obedience. So, you know, people would always say, oh, the horse doesn't respect you. He doesn't respect your leg. He doesn't respect the bit. He doesn't respect the fence, um, meaning jump. He doesn't, um, you know, he's not respectful of your space. He's rude, blah, 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 all, all of this stuff. If the horse turns his hind into you in the round pen, he's being disrespectful, which is like in all of those scenarios where we're upset that the horse is not being obedient, not that the horse is being disrespectful. There are two different things. So respect is more of a concept about like, you know, admiration and wanting to, to please. And, um, you know, and that can be part of obedience, right? But respect is more ooey gooey. I feel like for this, it might actually be helpful to look up the real deal definition of respect (laughs) because it's so mushy gushy in the horse world a feeling of deep admiration for someone or something elicited by their abilities qualities or achievements Um, due regard for the feelings wishes rights and traditions of others so there you go synonyms include admiration approval appreciation okay so these are horses or feelings emotions Horses that we know of are not able to conceive of. They do not have a frontal lobe for processing such things, such complex things, and that is anthropomorphic personification of horses to expect them to understand this really complex, multifaceted concept, right? So what we're looking for when we say the horse doesn't respect your leg is the horse is not obeying your leg. The horse is not responding. Um, so in in that case, if you were asking for like a leg yield and you put your inside leg on and the horse moves into the pressure, the horse is not obeying the, the cue or the command to move away from the pressure. So there are a couple reasons for disobedience, right? It could be that's uncomfortable, that hurts, Um, I'm afraid I don't want to, (laughs) um, and, or I don't know, I'm confused. So to, to say the horse is not respecting is to say that the horse is, you know, a petulant child that needs discipline. And it's a, it's a shortcut to justifying harsher training methods, um, and force. So, um, if you replace it with the word obedience, it makes a lot more sense. Like the horse is not obeying, you know, whatever it is. So the, the whole respect thing is so deeply embedded into the culture with horses, but it it doesn't really have a place there. If anything, it needs to be the humans respecting the horses. Um, because there's a lot of disrespect going the other way. It's very projecty. <laughs> if you're familiar with the concept of projection, you sort of like your insecurities and your 
fears, you sort of put that in something else, usually someone else. And you say, you know, if you're disrespecting someone by taking away their autonomy, say with horses, um, and then the horse doesn't do what you want them to do. And you say, you are being disrespectful to my wishes, my autonomy, you're, you know, you're invading my space, you're being disrespectful, when you are the one that is being disrespectful. So very interesting on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just gets thrown around with everything that is all about respect. And I would like to see it come from the human first, in a true sense. And then, you know, then then let's talk about the horse. Okay, number three, punishment only teaches horses to conceal those things. So what I was just talking about, um, you know, to punish the horse only tells them conceal what you're worried about, what you're afraid of, what hurts, what's uncomfortable, or what you're confused about. It does not teach the animal that was wrong. I mean, it, it does in some sense, right? So the in the leg yield example, the horse pushes into the leg and you, you know, smack him on the shoulder with the whip. You've punished moving into the leg, but the horse doesn't learn oh, I'm supposed to move away from the leg. The horse might do that as a response to the pain, and then it gets released, and then you sort of get this perhaps negative reinforcement wrapped up within in the positive or punishment. But it is not teaching the horse what to do instead. So that's that's the huge issue with punishment, right? It doesn't tell the animal or the learner, because this is true for humans too, it doesn't tell them, what to do instead. So, you know, you're tacking up and your horse, uh, you know, you go to tighten the girth and the horse bites at you and you smack them on the shoulder. You've just told them, don't tell me that that is uncomfortable, that hurts, that you don't like that, um, that surprised you. Don't communicate to me. And then you create a very dangerous horse because now they're unpredictable, they're reactive because they know they're going to get punished for reacting but they can't help but react. I mean, you often see horses that when they do that, when they bite at you for girthing them up, they almost reel back, like expecting you to hit them. So they're already like flinching before you even move, um, even if you don't hit them. And they're there because they're expecting that, but they don't know how else to sort of communicate. And sometimes it's a reflexive response and they're like, oh my God, that hurt. And they bite at you. And then they're like, oh my God, I'm going to get hit. And so they don't have an alternative and it's up to us with the frontal lobe that can handle concepts such as respect and problem solving efficiently um, and on a higher level than horses to solve that with antecedent arrangement you know take care of their management and their medication needs and see do they have ulcers is is something pinching in the saddle rather than just i mean being barbaric <laughs> frankly um and that horse's skin is more arguably more sensitive than ours. Um, they can feel flies land on them, and yet we beat them with whips and say that they're tough. But then we say they're sensitive because they can feel flies. It's cognitive dissonance. Um, and I read this this quote that I feel like really encapsulates that punishment only seeks to conceal um, by Hayam Janot, I believe. Emotions do not vanish by being banished. So you can't just say, don't feel that way, <laughs> or, um, oh, that hurt? Simply stop hurting, or you're wrong, or smack, 
you know, it doesn't get rid of that emotion. Might temporarily replace it with a new one, such as fear, but it doesn't get rid of it. And so rather than aggressing, why don't we be addressing? Mic drop, you're welcome. (laughs) Um, Okay, number four. This one was a big one for me personally. Um, A little embarrassing to admit, but it's not cool or a badge of honor to ride a hot horse. So um, I did not play a role, at least intentionally, in making Zoe a quote-unquote hot horse. But she was always labeled hot, spicy, um, you know, just big, big energy, really um, reactive and sensitive. Sensitive was the nice word. Um, but it's it doesn't, like, I used to feel like it was reflective of me being a good writer because people would always be like, oh, you handle her so well. You sit all of that. You, you're such a good writer because you, you're so quiet even when she's doing all of that. But, like, that's not, I mean, I'm just on a horse that's really uncomfortable <laughs> and that is experiencing pain, anxiety, you know, and, and I'm just continuing, like, doing nothing except forcing it to continue through that. Um, Zoe was really the champ, the badge of honor through all of that competing and being a rock star um, while dealing with all of that and just being ignored and blown off. Um, I was never harsh with her. I mean, I'm sure there were some times that, you know, I got strong. Um, Well, now there are there are definitely times that I was aggressive with her, you know, seesawing the reins or um, I rode in spur sometimes, but I never really, at least with her, knew that using like the whip and getting like super aggressive, like I had with other horses in the past, made it so much worse with her. So it was more like just trying to bottle everything. Um, But God, thinking about all that is just (laughs) horrible, horrible, awful. And, um, you know, we learn, we live and we learn. Um, I just hate that that's the culture in the horse world. I have to accept my own responsibility for it. But to a degree, it's also when you're a child brought up in it and taught that this is the only way and you slowly have your your soft edges sharpened and you become more and more aggressive, more and more desensitized, more and more able to to just hit 100 and be aggressive. I mean, I don't know how much responsibility to take for that. Or even my trainer should take for that because it, this has been a long-standing issue in the horse world. It's far more systemic than any one trainer or rider. Um, but yeah, it's not cool. It's not cool to, to be the rider of a horse that is in distress. It is much cooler to be quiet and soft and riding a horse that you basically don't have to move on. <laughs> it looks like you're connected telepathically that um, you think and the horse reacts because you don't need to be loud with horses. You can be soft and quiet and they are the same in return. Um, so next here is five. This was a big one for me also. It's not a disservice to or a waste of the horse to not exploit their talent and athleticism. So for me, I always felt like with Zoe that I was doing her a disservice by not competing her at higher levels because I had Olympians and trainers and people online and all these people saying, Zoe is so talented. She can go all the way. She'll take you to Rolex. And that, that was huge for me. And I, I was like, 
that's amazing. This is great. <laughs> Let's do that. But I also felt like, you know, I'm not in the financial situation. I'm not in the education situation with school. Like I can't take off for months at a time to go to Florida and stay down there and train and train and train and train. And, um, like it just, I was like, you know, and then at a certain point I was like, maybe I don't want to go pro. I don't want to compete at the highest level. It scares me and I'm comfortable at training level. Maybe I'd like to go to prelim, but not much higher than that. And, um, I'm doing her a disservice and I really considered selling her at one point because I was like, she is so much more talented than anywhere I'm willing to go talent, more talented than me. So I, you know, I'm, I'm not riding her. Well, I got a, had a lot of self doubt about how hot she was and just being like, maybe I should just sell her and an older, more educated rider would take her all the way. And that would be better for her because I'm wasting her talent. Um, when the reality is she's a horse (laughs) She does not have these grand dreams of being a an Olympic athlete. She thinks about grass and companionship and scratches and breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> she does not she's not worrying about things that we humans project onto them. So the relationship is enough to to be there for her, to care about her, to make sure her needs are met is enough. I wish I had known that long ago, that it is fine to have a talented horse and to just enjoy them. They do not have to go and do and be and whatever. They can just be. That it's okay to rest. I don't have to constantly be working and grinding seven days a week. I can just enjoy the horse, you know, and she can just enjoy being a horse. Um, so, yeah. Number six regulating bodies do not always safeguard the horse's best interest and welfare. So I used to justify like, like harsher bits, whips and spurs. I was like the FEI and like you, Yousef would not allow us to use those things if they were harmful to the horse. Obviously they wouldn't like, why would we be allowed to use things that are harmful? Um, not the case. (laughs) So very much not the case. Um, like it's, it's just, it's so not the case. It is about money and um, output. How many horses are you able to do? How many shows are you able to do? Um, How much money are you able to make? It is not about the horse's welfare. Um, Yeah, it's... Tradition is not law, and it often fails to update with the current research, is number seven. So big talk growing up about how like, well, it's tradition. It's, we do that because it's tradition or that's the way it's always been done. Um, this is how you train horses. This is how millions of people over millennia have trained horses. Um, it's not law and it often fails to consider current research. I remember growing up, it was really frustrating for me because I, I have always been like a little bit of a research nerd. And so I would look up things And I remember like bringing positive reinforcement to my trainer and talking about, you know, like what positive reinforcement is and explaining like, we've been using negative reinforcement this whole time. It's crazy. And getting back, no, we're not. That's not what it is. We are using positive reinforcement, Um, which is like, bruh, (laughs) 
um, which is, I mean, this it's number eight on my list that release does not equal reward. That was a huge one, you know, that like we are using positive reinforcement. So when you, when you release the pressure on the rein or on your leg, that's the reward. That's not a reward. That's a release. It is a removal of an aversive that reinforces behavior. So yes, it's a reinforcer, but it is not a reward. So, um, you know, it's just that traditional mindset where you're rigidly adhering to something because that's just how it's always been done. That's, you're not willing to consider new information and science and research as it grows and evolves, we have to learn to assimilate that with what we know and, um, and update our practices. And that just is, is reality. But to not do that leaves you in the dark ages and continuing to do things that we know are harmful. Um, so I, I wish that I had known that. Um, so number nine is there's a difference in giving the horse a treat and training with positive reinforcement. So I remember back in the day, uh, I always had, you know, positive reinforcement people, uh, trainers commenting on my stuff, saying that I was, you know, being harsh with my horse, that I should look into positive reinforcement. And I rolled my eyes and I was like, you're ridiculous, whatever. Um, I'm not hurting my horse. Very defensive and protective as I should be. You know, I, I think that I'm doing what's best for my horse and I'm very protective over that relationship. However, that needs to also come with some humility and some openness to, might I consider doing something else? Might I consider that something that I'm doing is harming my horse and can I just change it? It doesn't have to be this big, like earth shattering deal that like I'm a horrible, awful person, but maybe that I just maybe need to stop doing that or maybe could start doing this. Um, it's just, there's so much shame wrapped up in that. And that's, that's another point further down the line, but, um, you know, that it's, I, I just remember being confronted with that and being like, I do use positive reinforcement because I give my horse a treat at the end of every ride, having no idea that just about all I'm reinforcing is standing in the cross ties after I've taken the saddle off. Um, the horse has no idea that that was about the ride, um, or the lesson that day. So the cherry on top approach, you know, and give them a treat after this crazy long session has nothing to do with reinforcing any of the behavior I wanted during the ride. It has everything to do with what's happening right, right then and there when I give them the treat. Um, so number 10, management should be based on ethology and species appropriate care. So this was one that was about like stalling and management practices so like horses don't prefer to be stalled I always was brought up thinking that like the fancy horses are inside the um the competition horses the special ones um are inside you know maybe the lesson horses are the ones that stay outside the grade horses not the the thoroughbreds or the warm bloods and so there's an elitism built in there right that it's you know because stalls are generally more expensive. So if you can afford it and it's more expensive, it must be better, right? Um, if that's what people who can afford it are doing, then that must be the way to go. If it costs more, it's better. Um, which is obviously not the case. That's very, again, projective of humans. We prefer to be 
inside and climate controlled environments and you know horses are adapted to be outside to be moving to be foraging to be grazing to be in a herd and we could argue some of that is is true of us as well especially the socialization aspect and um we've done ourselves a bit of a disservice as well but um for the horses it's not fair <laughs> to be like they prefer to be stalled no they're nice cushy warm stall um, when that's, it's not species appropriate care. And we know that because of things like stereotypes, um, and numerous studies on stress and what horses do naturally, how their bodies and systems are designed. Um, so speaking of the design of their systems, that cereal grain is not ideal. Feeding two meals a day is not ideal. It creates some stress and is hard on their systems. It's much better to have a forage based diet where they're having access to forage like hay and grass all day long because of how their stomachs are set up that they're constantly primed to digest so it's not ideal to expect them to have all their needs met you know once or twice a day so number 11 here we're just about halfway through um and my throat is, it kills me with these episodes. I don't know what the deal is. It's like all of a sudden I've started recording and I just like can't talk for that long. Um, I don't, is that metaphoric? Is that like psychosomatic? I wonder <laughs> that like, I'm like, hmm, maybe, maybe it's time to, to retire the podcast and listen to sort of my body and my drive. I don't know. Interesting. I know I talked about that quite a bit in the last episode. So, um, feel like I can share that. But um, anyway, okay, so number 11 sort of moves into my little quotes section here. Um, So 11 is the one that anyone who listens to work stuff is well aware of. Uh, When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change that, um, you know, your thoughts and your perception create your reality. You're not your thoughts. You have control over them to some degree, obviously. Um, A lot of thoughts are habits, it's habitual. If you continue to endorse them and to practice them, that's where those neural pathways are going to go. But you can work the opposite direction and create different ones. So if you stop approaching your horse like they're um, a disrespectful being and that they are, and you know, and change that to they're an honest being, they're just being who they are. And it's, it's not an insult. It's not a judgment on you. It's just information. Then it starts to be a little bit easier to approach them and you see them very differently and your treatment towards them is very different. Um, so yeah, number 12, this one comes from Heartland, Heartland, Jack Bartlett of Heartland. Um, if you have five minutes, it'll take all day, but if you have all day, it'll take five minutes. I have to remind myself this every single time I go to work with Azula. I'm like, you cannot rush it. Do you have time? Do you have the mental capacity? Do you have the energy? Are you able to be patient or is it not a good time? All right. Do you feel rushed? Can we, can we take some deep breaths and resolve that or are we stuck here? Um, and then I proceed accordingly. It's a huge, huge thing because when we rush, we tend to get a little bit, a little bit feisty. Um, Number 13 here is yield to win. 
So this is a term that I'm stealing from John and Julie Gottman in terms of um, their compromise model. They call it yield to win, that if you back off a little bit, if you concede, if you give some ground, then you're able to move towards compromise, towards winning. And the definition of winning sort of changes. Are you winning the argument or are you winning the relationship as a team that you're both able to move forward? Um, And it's sort of that perspective thing again. So with horses, I see this in many, many ways. Um, But one being like when you go to catch them, a horse that's really hard to catch, if you walk up to them and you see them slightly tip their head away from you or bend down to itch their leg or grab a bite of grass really fast or have a worried eyebrow with a lot of them. If it's really hard to catch, you might not even get anywhere close. But with a lot of them, if you notice any of that tension and you just stop and maybe you even take a step or two back and maybe you look at the ground or turn your body away just slightly, a lot of times that horse's head is going to snap back to you and they're going to be like, you saw that, you noticed, you attuned. And um, a lot of times if you take like another step back after they do that, they might even approach you. And that would have saved me so much time and grief and just aggressing after horses and being like, you're going to run for me, then you're going to run. And instead just being like, oh, you're nervous. That's okay. I'm not a threat. I'll back off. And that's also part of that. If you have five minutes, it'll take all day. (laughs) But if you have all day, it'll take five minutes. And my farrier, I think, witnesses this a lot because he he knows to just hang back while I go catch them because if we try to corner them, it's going to take forever. But if he gives me a second and I can just walk up and if they seem nervous, I'll back up <laughs> And because, you know, I'll, a lot of the horses are retired and don't get handled every day. So, um, you know, I have my little process and if he'll just let me have a quick conversation with them, I can usually just catch them in like 30 seconds. But, um, yeah, so there's a lot about yielding to win that if you, if you allow more time, if you just wait a second longer, if you, you know, just give instead of being so adamant about forcing your opinion, your thoughts, your desires, if you just wait a second and you give just a half a second or whatever it is, you know, take a step back, not push your agenda so hard, you'll normally come out on the on the end of things, uh, much better. So number 14, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. Miss Maya Angelou. Um, that quote was extremely helpful for me in my traditional horse training recovery. (laughs) Um, coming to the positive reinforcement side, there was a lot of guilt and a lot of shame of being like, Oh my God, what have I done? And what have I been doing to my horse for all of these years? Like, so much stress and anxiety and pain that I have inflicted on my horse and having to be like, you just, one, didn't know, two, weren't ready to hear it, and three, weren't in a place where you could. You just, you are where you need to be right now. Where you are, how you feel, what you're doing is what you need to be doing. And once it feels like it's, you've outgrown it or it starts chafing, that it's not really, you know, fitting for you anymore, then you're ready, then you can change it. And when you know better, you can do better. And that is a a big practice of self-compassion. 
And it was, it was a big deal to me to be like me changing how I've always worked with and trained with horses, how I've interacted with them. is not admitting that I have, I'm just this horrible person that I've had all this cruel intent with my horses that I've wanted to be cruel. It, it, it's not me admitting that by changing what I'm, what I'm saying about myself when I, I change the way that I work with horses is that I, it's, it's more of a show of my dedication to my animal that I care about them so much so that I'm willing to adjust, to try something else for their benefit, for their betterment. I'm willing to accept my past actions and practice self-compassion that that's where I was at. And that sucks that my horse had to pay for that, but that's, that's the best I could do at the time. I was always trying to be kind to my horses and to do right by them, but I didn't have all the tools I needed at the time. I did, but I didn't, I didn't know that I did. So that's a big one. Um, and then we move into more of the systemic issues. Um, it's interesting and I might lose some of you here. So, so just bear with me, just, just hear me out. Okay. So a lot of issues in the horse world, I think, come from a lot of systemic issues. So one of the systemic issues in at least Western American culture is a lot of negative feelings towards minority groups. And one of them, which is, I mean, is it a minority or is it the fairer sex, whatever, but the misogyny towards women that to like do things like positive reinforcement is weakness that you're too tender-hearted that you need to be firmer you need to be disciplined which is reminiscent of a father um that you need to demand respect again a father <laughs> that um you know a display of emotions or resistance is um is you know inherently bad it's moody it's emotional which is misogyny So, you know, number 15 is many of the issues in the horse world are reflective of systemic issues in society, at least my pocket of the world. Um, So 16 is mares are not moody. (laughs) It's it's not a thing. It's it's so silly to me that there's this like red chestnut mare, like the color of the horse has anything to do with what's going on in the noggin. That is, it's reminiscent of cultural values, right? That somebody's skin color or their hair color says something about who they are. It's an idea that got generalized from people and systemic issues to horses. Um, I think it's very reflective, you know, the horse world and society. They, they show a lot of the same things. So there's that issue, the red chestnut mare. Um, and then the mare part that they're moody and they're bitchy and they're um, spicy and opinionated and stubborn, which are all things, of course, that are said about women. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's seen differently when the same behavior comes up in a gelding or if it's similar to that of the mare, then you say, well, he should have been a mare. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, so only the females can be right. Okay. So, um, that's that societal view bleeding into 
the horses. And what that does, why that's so harmful, is the same thing happens as what happens in women's health care. The statistics on how women are treated in like hospitals and in just general health care is that a lot of their problems are dismissed, that it's thought to be hormonal, and then they don't address the suspected hormone issues. It's thought to be, um, you know, just all in their head, and then they don't get the care they need. Like it is literally statistical. It's a statistical reality that that happens. And the same thing happens to horses. When mares are being moody, they're just being a mare instead of looking for, you know, are their hormones out of balance? Where are they in their cycle? Is there something, you know, pain-wise happening? Does the saddle not fit? Are they experiencing ulcers? Um, Do they need a lifestyle change? Are they getting their nutrition and uh, social and forage and environment needs met? No, they're just moody. So they're damaging concepts, regardless of what you feel about, you know, if we're like moving towards a culture of like being overly sensitive or whatever. I mean, because I know people have different views on politics and societal issues, but like putting that aside, it is a reality that this is what happens, that we call mares moody or, you know, emotional, opinionated, and it all has a derogatory connotation. So regardless of how you feel about those sorts of things, whether that's right or wrong or the truth that men and women are just really different in that way, that mares and geldings really are just different in that way, the effect is so harmful that, okay, even if that is the case, that mares are generally more, um, you know, quote unquote moody than geldings, okay, but why are they expressing this behavior that is so quote-unquote negative you know that's you know problematic all behavior has a purpose that's another another point I have so okay fair enough but saying that they're being moody doesn't give you any path toward helping the horse deal with their emotions like as a therapist when somebody is having mood issues, we look at them holistically. Okay, what is your diet like? What is your exercise like? How, how is your social life? How are you managing your self-care and your, your health practices? Okay, after that, how are you managing yourself emotionally? What are some behavioral things and cognitive things you can implement? What are some processing things we can do? You know, you, it's, it's not, that's not the, the like, conclusion. (laughs) Okay, the horse is moody. The end. No. Okay, even if that is the case, where do we go from here? How do you address that? Because it's causing problems. Because if the horse is being moody under saddle, and you ask them to go and they pin their ears and they throw a kick, then they're going to get beaten. You know, usually they get spurred or they get kicked or they get whipped or they get turned in a circle or they get forced to work when they're expressing something. So it's, it's harmful either way. So like, would we rather continue that way? Or could we address the actual issue that maybe the saddle doesn't fit instead of just ignoring the problem? You know, so that's my little my little rant on that. Um, so 17, still on the societal systemic side of things, that softness is not weakness. So this is another thing I mentioned earlier that to do positive reinforcement and to be soft and kind and have a a gentle, compassionate approach to training is not to be weak. 
Um, a lot of people look at women, particularly in parenting or in the corporate world. And if you're lenient at all, if you have compassion and empathy for people and you allow them some error and you say, that's okay, I get it. Let's try again. Then you're being weak instead of being firm and disciplined and harsh and fire them or, you know, punish them, spank them. You know, it's, it's frowned upon and it goes deeper than the practice itself. It, it's, it's what it is associated with that femininity is, is something, you know, that's, I guess, inferior to masculinity when really everyone has a balance of both. And, you know, some people lean more one way or more the other. And some people are straight up down the middle. Um, and, you know, it, it's not a judgment to be masculine or feminine. It is just a part of who we all are. Statistically, as we get older, at least from what I've studied in my courses, and, you know, I could obviously be wrong, but um, from my understanding, what sort of happens throughout the lifespan is as we get older, we all sort of move towards androgyny. We all sort of become sort of this balance of masculinity and femininity that, you know, you're neither super feminine or super masculine. We all sort of end up, you know, embracing sort of every side of us. And obviously that's a, a binary approach, but I don't know that we, at least I don't have the language for, um, any sort of extraneous, um, elements of self, I guess, um, beyond masculinity and femininity. I don't know if there's a third, I mean, there's androgyny, but that's sort of the combination of both. And so, you know, we, from what I understand and in studies, you know, in advanced human development, the one class I took that you, we all sort of move towards becoming whole as it were, that you sort of embrace every, aspect of your identity as what it means to be a human. Um, so it's, it becomes very inclusive, you know what I mean? Instead of being like staunchly one or the other. And I think that's where people tend to get confused with, um, embracing other people that do not rigidly adhere to the binary that, um, you know, it gets, it gets confusing because you're either male or you're female and, that's not necessarily the case, especially as we get older and you study people, it's, it's fluid and people change and some lean more one way or the other or forwards or backwards, not necessarily just left and right. So, I mean, I think to, to reel it back to the societal value of femininity being inferior to masculinity, that to, to be weak in some areas is, you know, not as good, not as desirable that we need to be disciplined and we need to be authoritarian. Um, but you want the horse to be soft. You want the horse to be compliant. You want the horse to be submissive, which is very paternalistic in relationship. It's, it's very much you as the rider and trainer are the one that disciplines, that has authority that is dominant, right? And that the horse is to be the feminine, the submissive, the obedient, the respecting, and to be soft and supple in the bridle. But why is the rider not expected to do the same? You know, you're expected to have soft hands and to be quiet, but also 
where did that come from, from all of the, the roughness? Um, I hope that makes sense. That's sort of a, a difficult topic to sum up into a point. That one honestly could be like an entire episode, but um, yeah, please, <laughs> please take it with a, a grain of salt that um, obviously that's a very nuanced conversation and, um, you know, it's something that I think deserves a little bit more than I'm able to, to give in this, um, I, I guess in this format that I'm trying to like kind of burn through 25 with my throat also being like, no, thanks. Um, but yeah, so, so in the systemic societal issue that to see things as feminine is to see them as inferior and how do we, how do we integrate that in a way that honors the femininity and the things that are associated with it? Because to be soft with a horse is not to be feminine, but it's the association in our society that makes it, you know, sort of vilified or inferiorified. <laughs> um, hope that's making sense. Let me over explain it for 10 more minutes. Anyway, number 18, our mental health <laughs> and traumas and values and ideologies are reflected in our training and riding. So everything that I just discussed, you know, if, if you are, you know, there's sort of the, um, I guess, oh my God, I guess a cliche, uh, that's sort of doing it an injustice, but for lack of a better word, that the kid that's a bully at school was bullied at home. Same thing applies to horses and riding. We sort of do what we're shown, right? Uh, we do what was done to us unless we sort of break that generational trauma. Um, okay. 19. This, this one is moving more into change and a perspective shift, uh, and sort of away from some of the more concrete stuff. Um, so 19, uh, think in terms of what do I want the horse to do instead of in terms of what I want the horse to stop doing. So like I said earlier with punishment, it is more of give the animal a behavior. What do you want them to do instead? Okay, you want them to stop biting at you? What would you rather them do? Would you rather them stand calmly in the cross ties and not bite at you? Okay, how <laughs> do we reinforce that? We reinforce the horse standing still with the head between the shoulders, relaxed. The mouth is closed and it is staying out of your space. It is in between the horse's head and shoulders. So you're giving parameters. What behavior do you want to see? Not what you don't want. What do you want? You know, um, what's another example of a horse doing something wrong? I guess a horse kicking out at you as you walk past it, right? The horse is, when you walk past, raises a leg and kicks. So you don't want that. But if you just smack the horse, the horse learns nothing. What would you rather the horse do? You would rather the horse stand there with all four on the floor as you walk past it. So you can train that, but you also have to address why, in a lot of cases, that's happening. Has the horse been hit when it's been walked past? Is it vigilant? Do you need to work on the horse being more comfortable with that? Do you need to not surprise the horse? You know, it gives you a path forward rather than just punishing and then teaching the horse to suppress the behavior and thus creating potentially a more dangerous horse. Um, number 20, good riding and good training is very boring and often looks too easy. It looks like it's not fun because it's so easy. Um, that you don't see the blow ups and the bucking and you don't see how difficult it is. 
that if you address it from start to finish and you do good training with no holes, there is no, no room for the blowups, no room for the, the huge catastrophes. There's just trust, comfort, safety, sort of everything wrapped up into one. Um, 21, all behavior has a purpose and we need to look at what need is this behavior meeting rather than why is my horse XYZ character trait. So like, instead of being like, why is my horse such a a jerk? You know, why is my horse kicking out at me when I walk past it? What need is that behavior meeting? Is it protecting itself? Okay. So to kick out at me helps the horse feel safer. It feels like it's giving me a warning to not hurt it. So how do I meet that need? How do I teach the horse to meet that need differently? Do I just need to make him feel comfortable in this moment? Do I need to teach a different coping skill? You know, it it gives you, again, a path forward to see that all behavior has a purpose, that there's not this like, you know, adversarial relationship by giving them a negative personality trait um, that you're able to be like, okay, so (laughs) why is this happening? How can I help it forward? Um, 22, my relationship with my horse is my responsibility. Um, so this comes from the word professional, not really having a super clear definition in, in the horse world. Um, with a vet, you know that you're getting a vet. The vet has gone through veterinary school and is a equine vet. Anywhere else in the horse world, you can, you can call yourself a trainer, a body worker, a farrier, a dentist. And while many professionals do get the training, it's not necessarily regulated. Um, so a saddle fitter, you know, I mean, the examples go on and on and on. So while we hope that people have appropriate credentials and, do continuing ed there's not really a good like governing body of like in order to be a trainer you know there's um icp but it's not necessarily like up to date (laughs) because i mean like the governing body of um equine welfare in horse sport fei says that uh you know to ride bitless or bridleless is more harmful to horses and riders than to ride with a bit when research and science would probably disagree with that, (laughs) that, um, it is, it is more painful to have the weight of a bit distributed across the sensitive bars and tongue of the horse's mouth than across their nose. Um, and the difference in, you know, soft, wide leather and, a piece of metal <laughs> like but then it's like oh it's a safety issue but then it's like is is it a safety issue or is it a is the is the the equipment the safety issue or is the training the safety issue so then maybe we need to back up a couple steps and regulate the training a little bit better than insisting people use a certain type of equipment um i know shelby dennis just made a presentation over this that's sort of why it's top of mind So definitely check out her conversations on this if you haven't already. I'm pretty sure it's she posted quite a few things on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and 
uh, I think she did a podcast episode over it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think on 21 as well, the uh, all behavior has a purpose. Stereotypes are a big one. They're, they're coping skills that it's not, um, you know, cute or funny that the horse is weaving or pawing or it's not annoying and a vice that the horse is cribbing. Um, it's a coping skill with something. Uh, a lot of times weaning and improper management. Um, sorry, burp. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so on 22, that my relationship with my horse is my responsibility. That professional doesn't have a clear definition. It's it's something that we have to take with a grain of salt. You can be diligent and say, what are your credentials? Where did you study? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, and it's, it's an unfortunate reality, but it really is ultimately our responsibility and up to us to investigate and make sure that we're giving and providing the best care for our horses. Um, 23, if you slow down, you'll get there faster. So this is, this reminds me of successive approximation that if you, instead of attacking this big behavior, like starting a horse under saddle and you go, okay, can you stand still (laughs) when you're asked, you know, break it down and make it manageable, bite-sized problems that you can solve together, a puzzle you slowly piece together, um, rather than trying to slam it all together. If you slow down and take a look at it, you'll be able to piece it together a lot easier. So number 24, when you don't respect the no, you cannot get a real yes. This is consent, folks. Um, No means no. (laughs) And if you don't respect that no and the horse uh, and you override it and force the horse, you're not getting a yes. You're being coercive and using force. Um, And I read this quote um, that says when horses say no, their mission is to make us understand, not to make us feel good or bad. So that is reminiscent of many points throughout this, this episode that it's not, it's not to place a judgment on us or to make the horse our enemies or that they're being disrespectful or disobedient, um, or rude. They're trying to communicate. They're trying to say, Hey, that hurt. I'm confused. I'm scared. I'm not sure, and to let us know, not to make us feel bad and become our adversary. So respecting that no is the only way that you get a real yes. And if you slow down and then you start getting the yeses here and there, it starts adding up, and then you start getting an awful lot of yeses, and then things go faster. So number 25 was a big one for me that I don't know if it's super fair to say um, that I would go back and change it, but um, I wish I had been able to be a little bit more mindful about it. Um, So to treasure my passion and honor it and don't exploit it for, you know, X, Y, and Z, ribbons, um, sponsorships, money, views, all of that, that intention is everything. The, the way that I approach horses, I don't want to have to go out and be like, Oh, I need to take videos and film. And I should, maybe if I do this, I'll, I'll make sure it's in front of the camera. I'll do it one more time. You know, it needs to be for the benefit of the horse, for the training, for us, our relationship rather than for show. And that is, I think largely why I've really stepped away from social media is because I was, I became unable to do that. 
it it changed for me and uh, that was something really hard to be honest about and to come to terms with but that my relationship with horses is something that feels like it's a part of me it's in my blood it's who I am and I can't change it any more than any other part of me and it's something that I want to honor and treasure with the way that I approach it and I handle it and um that's something that I'm I'm finding my way through trying to figure out my relationship with it and it's it's a little difficult I'm not going to lie but I think it's it's really important and I encourage everyone to do the same you know it's 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 hard <laughs> in the world to approach horses and things that we love and our passion with that because you know there's the old adage you know if you if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And that may be true, but also you really run the risk of turning something that has intrinsic motivation to having now extrinsic motivation. And then when your work with your horse becomes about making money and that's how you're reinforced and that's how you're motivated, then you sort of lose that passion. Um, there's a great book on that called Drive by Daniel Pink. It's all about motivation and talks a lot about things like that. Uh, that in our society, you know, we're taught, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Um, And, you know, if you work harder and faster, you'll be better and produce more. That's not true. And uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of propaganda. (laughs) But the science is the science. And again, if you slow down, you get there a lot faster. That if you take the time and you rest, that is actually productive. And believe it or not, you don't have to be productive all the time. Because if you're not, you're actually more productive. It's crazy. Crazy how it all works. But yeah, that's sort of everything, I think. That is 25 things I wish I had known about horses to celebrate turning 25. Um, So yeah, I think, well, we just hit the hour mark. So that is, I think, going to conclude this episode. I want to thank you guys for listening and being a part of the ride for this long. Um... But hopefully I will catch you next Tuesday, even though this episode is late because I'm recording it. It's currently 12 p.m. on Tuesday. And we'll see how fast I can throw this bad boy up. Oops. Oops, oops, oops. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. I'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye.